Well, I think the story of resilience is, is uh, a nuanced one. Uh, it's not always about bouncing back to the way things were, but rather about the ability to maintain core purpose with integrity, no matter what the circumstances are. A purely resilient system may have no baseline to return to, but always reorganize itself to deliver that core purpose with integrity. And so uh, it isn't just about falling over and getting back up, but rather it's about the ability to persist and even thrive amid disruption. I'm Andrew Zolli. I'm the uh, executive director and curator of an organization called PopTech. It's a global innovation network, and I'm the author with Anne-Marie Healy of Resilience, Why Things Bounce Back. Hello and welcome to the Grok Science Show. I'm Joanna Rowell. And I'm Forrest Gordon. As you heard at the top of the show, our guest today is Andrew Zali. Mr. Zali is the executive director and curator of PopTech, a collaboration of corporations, foundations, scientists, and on-the-ground practitioners tackling the world's pressing problems. He is also the co-author with Anne-Marie Healy of the new book Resilience, Why Things Bounce Back. Mr. Zali joined us the other day to talk about his book and about resiliency. And as you may have gathered from the quote we pulled for the top of the show, the first thing he had to do was explain to us what he's talking about when he talks about resiliency. Right. There's an old saying, fall down five times, get up six, that I think of when I think of resilience. But really, you could say that's determination or perseverance or even pigheadedness. And when you can't decide if something means A or B or C, it might be time to get a dictionary out. Or in this case, time to talk to Andrew Zali. In that clip you heard at the top of the show, Mr. Zali described resilience not as the ability to get back up, but the ability to move forward regardless of the situation while maintaining your integrity and core principles. The ability to persist and even thrive amongst disruption. There's one story in Mr. Zali's book that captures this idea phenomenally well. That story centers on Hancock Bank. As many people will recall, when, when Katrina hit the Gulf Coast, uh, much of our attention was rightfully uh, focused on the terrible tragedy that was unfolding in New Orleans. But, of course, Katrina hit a huge swath of the southern part of the United States. And uh, uh, up and down the Gulf Coast, there was tremendous devastation. Homes were destroyed and people were evacuated uh, along a stretch of, of literally hundreds and hundreds of miles of, uh, of American coastline. And, and nowhere was this devastation uh, felt as acutely as in places like Gulfport, Mississippi, where a regional bank called Hancock Bank uh, had its headquarters of operation. This is a Han Hancock Bank is a more than 100-year-old uh, community bank institution, a regional bank. And uh, in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, they faced really existential challenge. Their uh, gleaming new headquarters have been utterly decimated. Uh, more than 90 of their more uh, more than 90 of their more than 100 or so uh, branches at the time had been uh, closed and shuttered. Some of them obliterated by the storm, and with police and firefighters off ch uh, tackling more difficult problems, uh, it was impossible to get into many of these branches to reopen them. Uh, not to mention the fact that the customers of the bank, uh, many of whom had been pushed out of their homes at, uh, under terrible duress, lacked uh, ID and lacked um, 
proper identification and didn't have their checkbooks with them. Uh, not that any of that mattered because there was no electricity and there was no ability to turn computers on and find out how much depositors actually owed at the bank. And so uh, here you had a situation in which the community desperately needed resources uh, so that they could begin to just deal with the immediate aftermath of the storm, open, uh, uh, you know, various storehouses and, and pull out uh, resources. People needed typically small amounts of money, but they desperately needed money. And there was no way to validate them. There was no way to find out how much they uh, 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 held in the bank, and there was no way to um, give them the money. And so Hancock Bank did something really extraordinary. They went back to their original charter. This is a um, uh, you know a, a bank that uh, that has a charter that goes back more than a hundred years. And they noted that their um, central values, as articulated in, in their kind of central mission, as articulated in their charter, was to serve the community first. And so they did something truly extraordinary. They set up. Uh, in card tables and in um, uh, and in little pup tents and in mobile homes outside of the banks, uh, small kind of virtual branches. They went down to a local casino, got some uh, dollars, and literally laundered the money. They put them through washing machines uh, and ironed them on uh, on using little electric portable irons and then handed out $200 in cash to anybody who would sign a small post-it note-sized piece of paper with their name, address, and social security number. They didn't even have to be uh, uh, depositors at the bank. They didn't have to be customers of the bank in order to get access to these resources. This is like a scene out of something like, um, like uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, you might recall that famous scene where George Bailey uses his uh, his own money uh, rather than than go uh, with his new bride on on a honeymoon. Uh, he prevents a bank run precisely at the moment that the community is feeling most anxious. And this uh, gamble, um, this enormous act of trust that the bank undertook with its uh, community, paid off tremendously. Um, you know, it might seem like a crazy thing to do to give people cash. They gave out literally uh, millions and millions of dollars, some $40 million in cash uh, in the weeks after the storm, but 99.5% of those funds were um, returned to the bank, even by non-customers. And those non-customers became customers. The net assets at the bank grew by $11 billion as people moved their resources over to Hancock um, to reward them for their tremendous act of faith in the community. And so it's the ability of organizations to change their behavior into radically different regimes like this, to do things that are completely different than they normally do that are the very definition of resilience. That's a really great story. Yeah, it really restores your faith in humanity. Hancock Bank encountered a very difficult situation, both for the bank and for the community the bank operated in, and to overcome the difficulties they faced, Hancock took a page from its charter and helped out the community. What Hancock did very clearly exemplifies what Mr. Zali was talking about when he described resilience for us. They looked to their core principles, acted with integrity, and got through a difficult situation with a lot of success. But. There's always a but. There's always a but. But it wasn't as simple as that story made it seem. A lot of things, things I would never even think about, were actually in Hancock Bank's favor in that situation. Here's Andrew Zali again. 
resilient enterprises are able to think in more than one time signature at the same time. And this is uh, illustrated by two wonderful stories from Japan. The first one is that they both happen to be more than a thousand year old stories, too. Uh, the first one uh, starts uh, in um, a small fishing village on, the, on Murahama Island. A thousand years ago, there was another mega tsunami like there was last year uh, in Japan. And in response to that mega tsunami, the residents of this small fishing village scrambled up a hill. Uh, to find safety. But unfortunately, um, just as they came to the top of the hill, a secondary wave, which had gone through another um, series of valleys that were connected to the mainland, came roaring from another direction and obliterated all of the people who uh, had, uh, had scrambled up this hill for safety. So the residents of this community um, built a shrine, actually, that continues to this day, a shrine uh, that uh, warns people about the possibility of disaster, tells people that, that even though it looks highly unlikely that the waters can actually reach as high as this place, and that this is not the safe place, that, uh, that higher ground has to be sought than, uh, than this particular um, uh, high, local high point. Uh, that shrine saved people's lives last year. Uh, it acted as a signal across literally a millennium uh, to indicate to people in 2011 uh, that, uh, that this, even though it looked safe, was not safe uh, as a place to go. And so there you have an example of, of a very long-term pattern. Um, people's uh, cultural memory, uh, uh, a community's cultural memory reaching across uh, uh, dozens of generations um, to speak to the future about, uh, about calamity. Now, interestingly, about the same time um, as this happened, there was another story that happened in Japan, and this was about the, the death of the oldest company on Earth, uh, a company called Kongogumi, which was founded in, I think, the year 568 A.D., and was led by 40 generations of the same family, if you can imagine it. Um, this is a company that built temples, um, in Japan, and uh, its lessons of resilience and stability over a long period of time are, are many. First of all, they picked a very stable environment in which to operate. They picked a, a relatively placid line of work, and they credit their resilience to their ability to hire flexibly. They didn't always hire the firstborn son, uh, but sometimes rehired uh, uh, the second-born son, they had people marry into the family who were good managers, and sometimes they hired, they hired women, and the 38th, for instance, uh, generation uh, of people to manage the company with the 38th CEO in a row was, was the grandmother of the 37th, uh, so they, they didn't always stick with this sort of all-male line of succession. So what caused the company to go out of business, as it did in 2007, um, after uh, such a very long time, 14 centuries of continuous operation. Well, the first thing is that they'd made some bad bets in the 1980s and 1990s on real estate, as many people in Japan had done. 
this was a very difficult time in Japan. But really, the central reason the company went out of business is that they weren't able to change. Uh, there was a fundamental cultural shift in Japan around patterns of giving to support temple construction, and they couldn't really diversify their line of business because they were beholden to the past. And so, uh, unfortunately, this um, incredible institution uh, finally passed out of existence in 2007. So sometimes resilience is proffered and, and supported by having deep connections to the past, and sometimes it's proffered by knowing when to break those connections. And, of course, the art is knowing which to do when. So we said that Hancock Bank had a lot of things in its favor, and those examples from Mr. Zali illustrate two of them. First, Hancock Bank had a charter. They had a guiding principle to fall back on. Second, they were willing to adapt to changing situations. But being willing to adapt, that's not necessarily much of a plus. Kongo Gumi, the corporation from Japan that we just heard about, was surely willing to adapt at least a little. They certainly didn't want to go out of business, but they couldn't adapt, at least not in the way or time necessary to save their business. That brings up a very important question. Can you tell a difference before a catastrophe between an organization like Hancock Bank and one like Kangagumi? Can you know something is resilient before that resiliency has been tested? Right, and the questions keep going from there. What can you do to make sure you succeed through that catastrophe? How do you balance the desire to stay true to your core beliefs while maintaining the flexibility perhaps necessary to thrive through a challenge? In short, how do you make yourself more resilient? What you can do is increase the, the, the likelihood that an organization or a structure will be able to, uh, to withstand a change by ensuring some features about it. Uh, there are some structural elements of, of resilience like uh, modularity and diversity that have to do with how the organization is structured so that it can recompose itself in the midst of disruption. Um, so some of these patterns include modularity, diversity, localism. Uh, these are the kinds of things that affect an economy as well as an organization and an individual. Um, that said, Paradoxically, one of the things that makes resilient systems resilient is the occasional experience of failure. Um, systems ecologists who study resilience talk about something called the adaptive cycle, in which uh, this is something that's taken from the, the cyclical processes of forests. So, for instance, in a, in a uh, uh, complex ecosystem like, a, like a, a forest, you have periods of time when resources begin to come together. Uh, saplings begin to sprout. Uh, you have the beginnings of an early growth forest. That forest matures to a peak where it's conserving a lot of resources and actually utilizing them extremely efficiency, uh, efficiently. Um, and then periods of time when that system breaks down. And in fact, the breakdown is necessary. In a forest, it's necessary uh, to uh, have occasional forest fires because otherwise the uh, non-fire resistant trees kill off the fire resistant trees uh, in, that, in their competition and the system overall uh, begins to break down. And then after that breakdown, you have a period of reorganization. And this is one of the reasons, this, this cyclical process of, of uh, collection of resources, conservation and maturation, breakdown and reorganization uh, happens routinely in complex systems like 
coral reefs and, and old-growth forests and in societies and civilizations. And it's one of the reasons why uh, we see some of the most resilient places in the world are ones that have a cultural memory of failure. Um, if we allow too much tinder to collect in a forest, when the collapse comes, it's overwhelming. Um, similarly, we often talk about once-in-a-generation calamities. And the reason we talk about once-in-a-generation calamities in a social context is because it often takes about a generation for people to forget that calamity can happen. So some of the most resilient places are places like New Orleans and Detroit, places that routinely experience, have experienced failure, in part because it keeps the memory of that possibility alive. Andrew Zale mentioned several more examples of trends in Hancock Bank's favor. Localism can help foster resiliency, and Hancock's charter explicitly instructed the bank to help the community. And the experience of having survived other previous hurricanes also helped. Like all banks, Hancock was holding savings and making loans and investments. But at its core, as laid out in the charter, Hancock had the simple mission of helping the community. And with that, we're right back to the charter. We're back to a bit of institutional memory that really helped the executives at Hancock make a very risky decision. But as Mr. Zali started talking about in that last answer, institutional or cultural memory isn't something that's just maintained by a shrine or bank charter. It's maintained by people. Well, sometimes, as we mentioned in Japan, it's about signaling the future, and sometimes it's about um, having places that uh, experience uh, disruption routinely enough that they are able to, uh, to, that everybody in the society is able to remember it. And sometimes it's about the strength of the social networks in those communities. So, for instance, we have people who were alive during the Great Depression now in our society, but we also live in a society right now where the connections between that generation and the generation that's currently in power are relatively weak. We have a tendency, uh, you know, a hundred years ago, uh, Americans lived in multi-generational housing units. So you lived with your elders. You lived with your grandparents. I grew up in um, uh, and live in, in Brooklyn, New York. And in, in Brooklyn, I live in what was once multi-generational housing but was turned into multi-family housing. So in my building, it used to be the case that three generations of the same family lived together. The parents lived in the middle floor. The elderly grandparents lived in the basement on the ground floor so they didn't have to climb the stairs. And the young people lived at the top. Now, three different families without grandparents all live in the same place. Uh, it, one on each floor, and we've segregated our connections and, and often separated our connections in the past. One of the one of the great difficulties of American society is that we love beginning new things, um, but you need strong countervailing elements that connect us to old things. There was one thing in that answer that really jumped out at me, and that was the phrase "social network." For better or worse, you can't use a phrase like social network anymore without thinking about the internet, the Facebook, Twitter, and Google Plus, and so on. But the kind of social network is very different from what Mr. Zali described a second ago. He talked about multi-generational housing, where parents and children and grandparents are living in close proximity to one another. That sort of thing, where family members are living and interacting with each other every day, seems quite different from the average Facebook connection. We asked Mr. Zali if internet-based social networking, if 140 characters shared occasionally between high school classmates, helped foster resiliency. Absolutely, absolutely. 
Um, in the book, we actually tell a story about an extraordinary effort in which social media led directly to the saving of lives in the response to the Haitian earthquake. Um, in order to tell the story, though, we have to actually move from uh, Haiti and the Caribbean all the way over uh, to Africa back a few years prior. In 2007, there was an election in Kenya. And in the wake of that election, uh, there was tremendous ethnic violence in the countryside in Kenya, and there were not particularly good information sources available. And so a group of Kenyan bloggers uh, sort of put out the call for the development of tools that would allow ordinary citizens to report incidents of violence that they saw and have that, uh, those, those incident reports mapped so that people could essentially keep out of the way of danger. That tool became something called Ushahidi, which is a very powerful uh, crowdsourced crisis mapping platform, and it's been used thousands of times around the world by communities to map everything from election results to uh, oil spills. Um, in Haiti, in the wake of the earthquake in 2010, there was this tremendous uh, catastrophe, and a group of uh, uh, graduate students at Tufts University, um, within 96 hours, built a platform that allowed uh, uh, groups of volunteers to map all of the information coming out of Haiti, all of the secondary reports. And they literally self-organized completely uh, via tools like Twitter. But the story got even more powerful when one of those leaders, a fellow, a fellow named Josh Nesbitt, sent out a tweet saying he was looking for someone at one of the major Haitian telecoms and was connected to somebody in Haiti through another joint shared connection in Cameroon, of all places. And within uh, uh, 24 hours, they were able to set up a special short code on mobile phones. Uh, this is a code called 4636 that allowed ordinary Haitian citizens who were trapped in the rubble of Port-au-Prince uh, to text in, and they would broadcast this over loudspeaker. They'd go through the streets and broadcast this over radio. People who were trapped or who had difficult circumstances could text in Haitian Creole where they were and what they were, what they needed, and have that information then sent via, via um, the cellular network to communities of expatriated Haitian diaspora immigrants in the United States who would translate the text from Creole into English and help provide local knowledge about where the people likely were based on their knowledge of Port-au-Prince and have that information then mapped in English and sent to first responders who could then respond to it have its, the responses sent back in English, translated back into Haitian Creole, and sent all the way back to the people who were trapped all in under two minutes. And that entire collaboration emerged um, on the strength of what we think of as weak tie social networks. That is, these are people who didn't necessarily see each other. The vast majority of, these, of the collaborators in this case never saw each other. They actually never met. Um, 
uh, and they didn't actually meet for years uh, until years and, and months afterwards. Um, there was a small core of people who were very tightly connected, who had very strong Thai social networks. They they knew each other very intimately socially, uh, and they were able to work together in an intensively collaborative environment to build these tools. But they were amplified by this vast, weak Thai social network um, that that allowed um, the system to work uh, basically around the clock with no central coordination. And really that mixture of strong Thai social networks, that is to say like the relationship you have with your best friend, you see them you know, with some frequency, and that, that kind of intimate relationship, small teams based on strong ties, with large networks of folks who are um, weak Thai networks, who are friends of friends you may not know uh, as well, uh, was the the essential recipe uh, for delivering this platform, which saved thousands of lives in Haiti. Of course, Facebook and Google Plus and the abundance of weak social ties we have now, those weren't always available. Something like what happened in Haiti probably couldn't have happened 20 years ago. We asked if the abundance of social networking connections to, available today makes us more resilient than we used to be. Well, <clears throat> the story here is a little bit complicated. Um, and it can uh, best be uh, um, expressed through the research of a network uh, scientist named Sanan Rall at NYU who, who uh, writes extensively about something called the diversity bandwidth trade-off. And here's how that works. Um, he studied, uh, uh, got his hands on huge volumes of, of email correspondence among folks who were... Um, executive recruiters, people who look for jobs for, you know, high-powered CEO positions. Now, these recruiters have to work together in teams. And one of the things he was able to do was map their social networks and then also map the kind of correspondence they had with each other and look at how long it took them to complete uh, various tasks, like the search for a particular position. What he discovered is that when people are strongly connected, they share a lot of the same people in their social network, their productivity is relatively low. And, and that should not be surprising. If you know all the same people I know, then we're going to talk to all the same people. We're going to have the same information. Now, as our network becomes more diverse, as you start to be connected to people that I'm not connected to, uh, our efficiency goes up our productivity goes up. The speed with which the recruiters are able to find good people goes up uh, dramatically. But it doesn't go up forever. It actually follows a kind of inverted U-shape. That is to say there's a kind of sweet spot of diversity where you're connected to some of the people that I'm connected to, but a lot of people I'm not. And I'm connected to a lot of people that you're not connected to, but some of the same people that you are. And at a certain point, if our networks diverge so dramatically that we don't know any of the same people, our productivity goes back down again. And so uh, certainly uh, these kinds of weak tie connections help, but they help in a very specific way uh, to complement the strong tie uh, relationships that we have every day. If you could design the optimal social network, and just wave a magic wand and say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the most value out of social networking and social media. What you would create are small groups of people who are strongly connected, who each off of them 
uh, have huge weak tie networks that are reaching out to vast numbers of people that uh, that you don't know. Um, sort of, sort of you, if you can imagine it, like a kind of a dense ball with lots and lots of uh, connections coming off of each one of the little elements that make up that little buckyball. The big story here is that uh, these kinds of tools uh, really do give us new capabilities, uh, and they're advancing dramatically. They're, they're, we're really in a foot race between the scope of our challenges and the scope of our new capacities. So if you have a lot of strong social contacts and only strong contacts, your access to information and opportunities will be limited. And if you have a lot of weak social contacts, the kind that prol proliferate on Facebook and Twitter, then you might see a lot of opportunities, but you might not have the social network strength necessary to act on those opportunities. However, if you can achieve a balance between strong and weak social contacts, you can maximize the opportunities available and your productivity and your resiliency will be at its peak. We saw that optimization in the example from Haiti. Weak social contacts allowed ideas to flow across the globe, and strong social networks allowed people to meet and collaborate and further those ideas. And it's a good thing we have global co cooperation like that, because in Mr. Zali's opinion, we need it. That's right. We asked Mr. Zali if we need to be more resilient now than in the past. We do, and the reasons for that are complex. Um, we live, first of all... Um, well, in the in the book, the metaphor that we use is uh, the metaphor of a car. So let's say that we take all the people who care about a big global crisis like climate change, let's say, and we put them in a car and we send that car careening toward the cliff of irrevocable change. Now, when the car is far from the cliff, the people who are in the car who have the moral authority say things like, stop, slow down, turn around. We have to come into some equilibrium with the um, with the cliff, because if we keep going in this direction, eventually we are going to go over, and that is the right and proper moral thing to say at that time. But paradoxically, exactly because the car is far from the cliff, uh, and because profits are rarely acknowledged in their own time, the car typically keeps going in that direction. And as the car gets closer to the cliff, another group of people come to the fore and they say things like, we had better put an airbag and some parachutes on this thing because even if we hit the brakes, it's likely we're going over and there are vulnerable people in this car it could get hurt, could get killed if we go, if we go over. And so uh, that's the right and moral and proper thing to say uh, at that moment when the car is close to the cliff. The people who are talking when the car is far from the cliff are focused on things like sustainability. The people who are speaking at when the car is close to the cliff are focused on adaptation and resilience. And the big headline here is that whether it's climate change or economic disruption or ecological disruption or food security, uh, we are actually living in an age in which we are closer and closer to the cliffs, all different kinds of cliffs. And the situation is worse because in our particular instance, the car we're driving, to use this metaphor, is connected by a chain on either side of it to a whole bunch of other cars. And those cars are things like food insecurity and poverty and other forms of disruption. And if one of them goes over, it might actually pull us like a, like a skier on a rope line over with them. And so the, the, 
period we're living in is a period of significant disruption in which our ability to forecast is dramatically reduced and our need for resilience is uh, dramatically increased. That's pretty scary. Yeah, it is. But this book is about resiliency. So for almost every sad Hurricane Katrina type story in this book, there's a Hancock Bank story, a story about persisting and thriving no matter the conditions. And for every story about something tragic like the Haiti earthquake, there's a story about an innovation that saved lives in or even because of that tragedy. And thankfully, while the challenges we face may be greater today, so too is our ability to face those challenges. My take on our current circumstances are that you have to be realistic about them. And to, uh, to be realistic means acknowledging that the scope of the challenges that we confront uh, is greater than ever before and that the capacity of our tools to affect those challenges is greater than ever before. And we're sort of in a foot race between those two, uh, those two areas. What, what I will say is that I'm extremely optimistic about humanity's adaptive capacity. I am extremely pessimistic about our ability to forecast. Our, we, we, in this period of time, our ability to see ahead clearly is greatly reduced, but our ability to act effectively is greatly increased. That's a much more hopeful note to end on. And it is, unfortunately, the end of this episode of the Grok Science Show. Our guest today was author and futurist Andrew Zolli. Mr. Zolli joined us and talked about his book, Resilience, Why Things Bounce Back. Whoever you are and wherever you are, if you have comments, ideas for shows, or even just want to say hi, we'd love to hear from you. For now, though, and for Forrest Golden, Elise Kovic, Frank Ling, and Charles Lee, I'm Joanna Rell for the Grok Science Show. Thanks for listening.